good morning to you all. My name is Josh Crane, and I am the headmaster at the Stony Brook School in Stony Brook, about an hour west of here. And it is a privilege to be able to be with you all. I remember about 10 years ago, my wife Jennifer and I uh, had moved to St. Louis to lead a school out there. And one of the first Sundays that we were there uh, contained the commissioning service for Mark and Leslie to come out here. And I remember thinking in the pews, now that's a good deal. Starting a church in the Hamptons, my goodness. And it's awesome to be able to be here and see the fruit uh, that God has brought through their work and see you all here today. So thank you for having us. So as I mentioned, I am the head of school at Stony Brook, which is a 93-year-old boarding and day school. We have 360 students coming from 22 different countries, 17 different states, and all across Long Island. We are engaged in significant work. Stony Brook is uh, a boarding school and was started because many of its peer schools started with Christian roots, were, were faithful to the gospel for a period of time, and then departed. But Stony Brook for 93 years has stood firm. And so it is a special place, I believe, in God's heart and in his kingdom work. And so I'm very grateful to be there. Our mission is to challenge young men and women to know Jesus Christ and to grow in wisdom and skill so that they might serve the world through their character and their leadership. And we do all that pursuing academic excellence, sending kids off to the best schools and universities in the world. And we're very grateful to be able to do that. It is a remarkable place with abundant kingdom potential. And I'd be grateful for your prayers and partnership. Well, our text today is from Acts chapter 12. I'm going to stretch the limits of your attention span and actually read the entire chapter. Because it contains a story that's important for us to hear. And it also contains within that story a pattern that you will see throughout the scriptures and indeed in your own life. And I think it's important to understand that pattern, to get a hold of it, to grasp it, so that we might better endure life's trials, tribulations, and trouble and live the triumphant, joyful life that God has called us to live as his people. So let's read together Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. 
It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened, what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray for just a second. Father, we come before you and we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. Show us your truth. Father, use me today to speak your words and your words only. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you will know that it is the chronicle of the people and the events surrounding the birth of the early church. This chapter is particularly important because it represents the pivot point whereby the author, Luke, will shift the emphasis away from the Jerusalem church with this emphasis on synchronizing the Jewish faith with the new Christian faith to the wild west of Paul's missionary journeys, reaching the far-flung parts of the known world where he shared the good news of Jesus Christ with people who had no knowledge of or context for the Hebrew God, let alone his messianic son. But as different as these two audience and approaches were, the disciples' experience of unfolding God's plan was remarkably similar. Today we're going to talk about this pattern in which God unfolds his plan under the heading, the pain in God's plan, the power in God's plan, and the purpose of God's plan. The pain in it, the power in it, and the purpose of it. First, the pain. If you're familiar at all with this passage, you probably remember it's the passage where Peter is miraculously released from prison. This passage often gets selected to put in children's Bibles because it's happy. It's a story of God's power. It's exciting. It's amazing. It's miraculous. And we generally have very happy and good impressions of this text. But notice, if you will, the first three verses. Herod is laying violent hands on believers in Christ. He kills James. James, the son of Zebedee. James, the brother of John. James, 
one of the three who were part of Jesus' inner circle, who saw Jesus transfigured and received Jesus' direct teaching the most. Stop right there and meditate for a second. Herod kills him. James is not a fictional character in an action film or a fantasy novel. He's a real person with parents, and siblings, and friends who are inevitably devastated by the loss of his life. You see, from our vantage point, we're, we have significant distance from the event, so we celebrate his martyrdom, his willingness to stand firm in his faith despite opposition. But ask yourself the question, what must it have been like for those who were left behind? Heartbreaking. And not only is James dead, but they have Peter now, the leader of the Jerusalem church as well, seemingly next in line for execution. And so the first reality that we have to confront when we talk about God's plan is that there's pain in it. The problem is in America we've become so pleasure addicted that this notion of suffering is something we dedicate our lives to avoiding. Show of hands. How many of you purposefully avoid reading the book of Job because you're afraid you might catch the sufferings that are contained in that book? Maybe I'm the only one. You see, at some core level, we think that God's job is to make us continuously happy. And when he doesn't deliver according to our plan and our specifications, we surround ourselves with gadgetry, with entertainment, with food, with vacations. Anything that will numb our souls. But we need to be careful for many reasons about our obsession with pain avoidance. In the New Yorker magazine recently, there was an article entitled, Pain Really Does Make Us Gain. At the core of the article was a study done by researchers at the University of Queensland and the University of New South Wales, where they studied the effects of pain on creating an emotionally connected group of people where none existed before. The research went something like this. There were two groups of people who had the task of putting their hands in a large tub of water and placing little balls at the bottom of the tub into a submerged container. The one group had water that was room temperature. The other tub was filled with ice water. The groups all had the ability to see their fellow participants while performing the tasks. After that task was completed, they had to perform two separate physical tasks. The group who put their hands in the ice water then had to perform wall sits, which is where you put your back up against the wall and bend your legs at a 90-degree angle. If you went to school a while ago, that might have been your punishment. Now we'd be in a lot of trouble if we had kids do that, but... In the old days, that was the kind of discipline we used to receive. It's not, it's not pleasant. But the other group had to stand on one leg with the ability to lean on something or change legs when uncomfortable. After the studies were conducted, the researchers asked the question, how much pain was there and how did you feel about the participants in your group? The students who had endured the icy water and wall squats had not only felt more pain but had perceived a stronger bond with their fellow sufferers. They felt more solidarity with them and more loyalty to them. And they felt strongly that the experiment had created unity. Those who had participated in the non-painful version of the experiment felt no such thing. The article goes on to say, to the researchers, the loyalty that we experience after feeling pain goes beyond any need to reconcile dissonance or to signal commitment. When you go through and experience pain with complete strangers, that shared experience brings you together in a way that is formative, he said. To him, that reflects another aspect of pain. It makes us focus to the exclusion of everything else in a way that no other experience quite does. Herein lies a clue as to why pain was so much a part of the experience of the early church and why we may be missing out on something crucial to our growth 
when we engage in habitual pain avoidance. Pain makes you focus. It turns your attention to the things that really matter. It bonds you with people. That's why C.S. Lewis says, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I don't know about you, but the times in my life where I've seen substantive growth, where I really changed as a person, where my character was formed, were times of hardship and distress, times of pain, where I had to acknowledge my frailty and finiteness before God and seek Him for His will and for what He wants. The writer of Ecclesiastes had this principle in mind when he wrote the following in chapter 7, It is better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Or as the great 17th century Scottish preacher and writer Samuel Rutherford said, God keeps his finest wine in the cellar of affliction. Notice what the pain produced in the early church. In a word, focus. Look with me at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word earnest is important. It is the Greek word ektenos from the medical term ektenes, which means to stretch a muscle to its limits. It is the same word used to describe Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. These folks were engaged in serious, sustained prayers for the release of Peter. This concept of stretching came home to me in a very powerful way last winter. Uh, And I want to share this story with you, but first I need to tell you about our dog, Barney. So Barney is four years old. We've been waiting for him to get out of the puppy stage and into the kind of relaxed midlife stage. It hasn't happened yet. He's a mix of about every highly energetic hyper breed that exists on the planet. But he's the only male besides me in a house of five girls. So he's dear. Well, my wife and I were uh, at our third daughter's uh, winter concert performance. And we returned about 9.45. And I had a lot of work to do. So I I sat down uh, to do that work to prepare for the next day. And I noticed that uh, we weren't greeted exuberantly at the door. That that, that there wasn't a dog foraging for food. That he wasn't laying on the couch where he shouldn't have been. And to my horror, I realized he's not in the house. And then I remembered that the electric fence, the invisible fence, was down because it was ice and snow. So he was out there somewhere. Let me tell you, it's a lonely feeling walking the streets on a very cold night with a stiff wind looking for a lost dog. And I didn't find him that night, but I remembered this verse. I had been studying it, and I just just stretched out in prayer. I I just went for it. God, please bring the dog home. Please, God, please. In a way that I hadn't been dependent in a long time. And as I was praying about my lost dog, I began to think about many other things that I should be praying about, things more important with such fervency, people's souls, intractable problems at the school that I had been relying on my own strength and wisdom to try to solve to no avail. And I just started praying for all these things, stretching out. I then sent a couple texts to some key prayer warriors asking them for prayer about Barney, and I went to bed around 1 a.m. that morning. Weary and sad, but I had this verse in my mind, in my heart. I didn't sleep all that well that night. I got up around six, still no dog. So I sent out an email to uh, our, our teachers, our parents, our students, just saying, you know, we're boarding school, so we can do that kind of thing, right? Uh, so um, I sent it out, 
and uh, just ask. If Barney didn't come home last night, if you've seen a dog running around campus, just let me know. And so, about 45 minutes later, as I was uh, about to get ready for a meeting, I got an email from one of our parents who had read her son's email that I had sent and sent me a screenshot from a Facebook page of a local mom's group with a picture of Barney and a caption that read, All right, Three Village Moms, do your magic. Whose baby is this? Found at the Stony Brook train station. Apparently, New York City beckons dogs like it does humans. We're on our way to Brookhaven Animal Shelter. Needless to say, our morning turned to dancing and we had a sweet reunion with our lost pup. Now, there are probably much greater things going on in your life than a lost dog. So may I encourage you to stretch out in prayer? To really pursue God with everything you have? To seek Him earnestly? To make it a priority on a daily basis to get before God and seek His will? Seek His face? And like Jacob, don't let go until He blesses you. God is there to answer your prayers. He cares. He hears you. Now sometimes He says wait. Sometimes He says no. Sometimes He says yes. But He always answers. And so I encourage you, go to Him. Seek Him. Don't give up. We can all testify about things we prayed for we didn't receive, but those things are withheld only in love and for our good. What the Bible seems to indicate is that God is honored by our sustained and earnest prayers. And notice God isn't looking for perfect faith. When Rhoda leaves Peter hanging at the door, right? What happens? She goes back and she says, Peter's here. And they say, no, it can't be. It's, his, it's an angel. It's his ghost. Right? They didn't even believe. So God's not looking for perfect faith in order to pray for him. I think of the verse that Jesus taught us. That if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... This mountain may be moved into the heart of the sea if you believe. He's not looking for perfect faith. He's looking for, for faith. He's looking for you to pursue him. So what else comes out of this is pretty amazing is that God's power is often elicited by and through our prayers, which brings us to our next point. There is great power associated with God's plan Take a look at the seeming causality between prayer and the display of God's power. It is no mere coincidence that verse 5 gives way to 6 and 7, whereby Peter, who is chained between two guards, is awoken by an angel, chains fall off his hands, doors open by themselves, and he is led out of prison into safety. The prayers stir God's omnipotence, and here in the story we see the power in God's plan. Herod likely knew that Peter had escaped before. In Acts chapter 5, Peter, along with the rest of the apostles, are imprisoned and miraculously escape. Herod the mighty one was going to be the sheriff who brings public enemy number one to justice so he sets up four squads of soldiers one at the gate one in the cell and two to rotate in so that no one falls asleep all night at least four people would be keeping watch over Peter but man's best efforts are pitiful when they set themselves up against God Proverbs twenty-one thirty says there is no wisdom no insight no plan that can succeed against the Lord let me say it again. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Herod was not the first king to set himself up against the Lord, and he is obviously not the last. God's power cannot be resisted, no matter how strong the opposition. We see a remarkable example of this pattern in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 20 where righteous King Jehoshaphat is about to be attacked by three armies who band together, the size of that army vastly outnumbering Judah's army. Initially overwhelmed and fearful, 
about the negative prospects of such a battle, Jehoshaphat calls a fast, petitions the Lord for help in time of need, and God tells them it's going to be okay. They simply need to take up their positions and march out to the top of the pass. Text says that as they prayed and praised, the Lord set ambushes against the armies and they turned and attacked each other. When the Israelites reached the top of the pass, all three armies had killed each other so that the Israelites didn't even need to take the swords out of their sheaths. They simply came and collected the plunder, which took more than three days to carry away. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, once said, there are three stages to every great work of God. First it is impossible, then it is difficult, then it is done. The Bible seems to indicate that God delights overturning the most challenging circumstances, whether it is Moses leading the Israelites across the Red Sea, or Daniel in the lion's den, or David slaying Goliath. When things are seemingly at their darkest, God's power is about to be on display for his people. I have a theory as to why this is. What these repeated deus ex machinas across redemptive history seem to indicate is God's insistence on showing his people and the world that there is no way you can attribute deliverance to human ingenuity, talent, or power. God is strong, and he will not share his glory with another. His own arm is the one to work salvation, and when deliverances like this happen, there is no way to credit anyone else. What challenges are you facing here at Grace Presbyterian Church? That seems so intractable so impervious to human solutions, so utterly impossible. You've been over them again and again and again. And there seems to be no way out. What iron gates are keeping you confined? Are you praying for God's power to be unleashed on those problems? I want to encourage you in such a way to pray that deliverance will not only point, that deliverance will not point to us and our clever solutions, but to God, so that no one will doubt his intervention And his fame will spread. As a mentor once told me, pray prayers that only God can answer. The concluding verse of the Second Chronicles passage that I reference is, And the fear of the Lord came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. May it be so when God works in our midst. So we have the pain in God's plan, we see the power in God's plan, and finally the purpose. In Psalm 62, 10 and 11, David writes, One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O God, are loving. In this psalm, David has an encounter with God, and he's struck by God's power, but his power is coupled with love, and that's really good news for us. If God were simply omnipotent, we'd have a lot to fear. Have you ever been around someone who had a lot of power who wasn't very nice? Scary. I think of the Greeks and their fear of Zeus, who had all the power but was mercurial, capricious, and deadly. You see, the Greek gods were fashioned in man's image, and because our horizontal experience of power is so often discouraging, so often fear-inducing, so unhealthy, the gods we create end up looking like us. You know the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, it sure is true, except in God's case. God's power is directed and channeled through love. When you work with children, you get to hear a lot of great questions. One of the questions that I've heard a lot in my time as an educator in Christian schools is, what is God doing right now? What's he up to up there? What's he doing? How would you answer that question? Yes, he's actively reigning over his creation, but he's also engaged in two big projects, both of which are guided by love. 
The first project that he's building for himself a people. A people who are called by his name. Over and over we see in the book of Acts that daily people were being added to the church. Notice after the death of Herod, who set himself up against God. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So here's Herod trying to suppress it and stop it. And Herod's the most powerful man in their universe at that time. And he can't stop it. People were added daily. The word of God increased and multiplied even in the face of the strongest opposition possible. God is growing his people numerically so that they'll be countless as the grains of sand on the seashore and numerous as stars of, uh, in the sky in the universe. A number no man can count. That is the purpose of God's plan corporately. Growing a people for himself. But the beauty of God's love is that it is also for the individual. And in each one of our lives, he is actively, masterfully, thoughtfully, precisely conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He is the forerunner, the prototype of what we are to be like. And God is taking each one of us with our unique thumbprint, our gifts, and our personality, and working within us the character of Christ. So to C.S. Lewis once said, we are becoming many Christs. And so you see the pattern repeated only in miniature. The pain he allows us to endure drives us to him. And we learn to pray and seek. And in so doing, we experience and understand more and more the incomparably great power that he put in us and through his Holy Spirit so that God's purpose of fashioning each one of us in Christ's likeness might be fulfilled. You go through trials and tribulations. I go through them. But they're designed. God isn't cruel. He's not mean. He's weaning us off those things that we depend on that won't give us life. He's telling us more and more to trust him. That he is able and he is capable. And he unleashes our, his power on us so that we see him move and we see the problems in our life. They don't necessarily go away entirely. We aren't always released miraculously from prison like Peter. But he gives us the grace to endure. And while he's doing that, he's transforming us. His purpose is being accomplished in our lives. Our sufferings and our trials, they're not our enemies. They can be our friends and very good ones at that. And you want even better news? These purposes are unstoppable. If you are in Christ, this work will not end in your life. God will finish the good work that he started. No, badly, no matter how badly you mess up, think about Peter for a second. He committed probably the worst sin of any of the disciples, right? He denied Jesus three times in Jesus' greatest hour of need. But look what happens. He's the one now in prison, falling asleep as he's theoretically about to be executed. His trust in God has grown. His boldness and his timidity. His boldness is now here. His timidity is gone. He, is, he has been changed this is the work of gospel sanctification. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you know Christ, he will not cast you out. This is the basis for real hope, the basis for real confidence, and the basis for real peace. This is the work God is committed to doing in you and me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your commitment to us. That you have secured us with the blood of your son. That you will not cast us out. That you will finish the good work that you have started in us. 
And Lord, no one can stop your plan. We have a savior. We have a friend. We have an advocate who will walk with us not only in this life but carry us into the next. God, you are so good. We're so thankful, Lord, for your plan, your plan of redemption. You didn't answer Jesus' prayer on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were silent because you were achieving something so much greater, the salvation of all of us. So we're grateful for that today. We give you praise for that today. And we ask that you would conform us more into your image, make us more mindful of your reality, of your power. Help us to live our days in love with you and in service of others. In Jesus' name, amen.